0: Thanks Melissa, good morning and welcome to Emmaus Online. As Nate mentioned, this is pretty new to all of us, but we're just grateful that we get to share this morning together. And I hope if you have kids in your home that you're all gathered around whatever screen you're using to worship together. My name is Angela and I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus and I just want to share a little bit about what I've been learning right now about mercy. I'm one of those people who grew up in the church. And I'm old enough to say that I grew up before a lot of the technology we have now. I grew up before Livestream. Um, I grew up before the Bible Project. I didn't even have VeggieTales, that's how old I am. But I do have a very vivid memory of my children's church experience. The church I was at as a kid had a whole building dedicated to children's church. The classrooms had this avocado green shag carpet. There was stained plexiglass windows, not stained glass, stained plexiglass windows that were lavender and gave the entire room kind of a purple hue. Um, And my Sunday school teacher, who I know had been teaching for a really, really long time, had pure white hair up in a bun. And while we didn't have videos and we didn't have TVs, what we did have is this flannel graph board. And some of you may know the flannel board, some of you this may be a whole new thing, but my Sunday school teacher would share with us stories from the Bible using this board. And we would have little figures that we would put on, objects, and we would learn Bible stories because of the flannel graph board. And if you were really good, if you were a good listener, you even sometimes got to put up a little figure on the board. So this morning, I wanna talk about um, one of my favorite flannel board stories, or my favorite Bible stories, but it was also a favorite when it came to the flannel graph board. I'm gonna go a little OG this morning as we use the flannel board to talk about a certain prophet. I know, live streaming, using the flannel board, I understand the irony, 1980 versus 2020, I know. Okay, but stay with me. Okay, so there is this guy, he's a prophet, and his name is Jonah. A lot of us have heard of this guy named Jonah. I'm gonna pop him on that board. Um, and God tells Jonah that he has a job for him. He wants him to go preach against the city called Nineveh. The city is bad news. They're evil. They even consider themselves the, the enemies of Israel. And preaching, preaching is this guy's job. So when God tells him this, we kind of expect that he's gonna go do it, but he doesn't. Jonah runs away. He runs away, he goes to the nearest port gets on a ship and thinks he can run away from God. Um, and there's these sailors there, and he just goes on. And while this is all happening, this, this massive storm happens. I mean, it's torrential. It's just giant. And while he's on this ship, it is, the ship is being tossed back and forth, and the sailors are starting to lose it. They are throwing the cargo overboard because they think this is the only way they're going to survive. And while this is going on, Jonah's actually sleeping down below deck. And the captain says to him, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? He goes, we need you to get your God to help us. So Jonah goes up and got these sailors, they know something's wrong. They know this isn't a natural storm. And they start casting lots to find out whose fault this is. And lots, those are kind of like dice. So they're throwing these lots and it lands on Jonah. And they're like, you're the problem. And immediately Jonah says, yeah, it's me. I'm running away from God, simple fix, just throw me overboard. And these sailors are actually decent guys, and they, they think, no, we don't wanna throw this guy into the storm, so they try a couple things, it doesn't work, so regretfully, they throw Jonah overboard. And we expect Jonah's gonna drown, but instead of drowning, this is when the story gets really wild, um, we have this giant fish that comes and swallows Jonah up. So instead of drowning, Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And during that time, Jonah kind of comes around. He decides, "Okay, God, I'll do what you say. And after those three days and three nights, this fish actually vomits the prophet up on the shore. So Jonah goes immediately to the town of Nineveh. He confronts their sinfulness. Um, And he tells them, in probably one of the briefest sermons ever, he says, 40 more days and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's all he says. And with that brief message, we kind of don't expect the town to do a whole lot, but the crazy surprise of it all is they do. All of them do. Even the king, he fasts, he turns from his ways, they repent. The whole city is repenting because of these few words that Jonah tells them. And because of this, God changes the plan. Instead of destroying the city, God saves the city of Nineveh. So if you're like me, this is what you grew up knowing as the whole story. Jonah finally listens, he obeys God, and Nineveh is saved because of him delivering, being a very short message, but they turn to God and they're not destroyed. This is the Sunday school story ending with a nice, clear moral, It even has, I think, a a happy ending, if we stop right there. But the problem is, with that Sunday school story, is that that's only chapter three. And the book of uh, Jonah has four chapters. So I'm not sure why a lot of us don't ever hear the whole story. Maybe it's too complicated and messy. Maybe for Sunday school teachers, it was just so much easier to keep it simple. Maybe it leaves us with a lot of hard questions. Sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable, but we need to go there. I think we need to talk about this last chapter of the book of Jonah. So Jonah, he tells the city of Nineveh this message, right? The people listen, they repent, God has mercy. It feels like a win, right? But there's a big plot twist. You see, Jonah gets super angry. And this seems like a weird reaction, right? Jonah delivers God's message, The whole city listens to him they change their ways and then God decides to spare the lives of 120,000 people and their animals it is God's mercy that actually is what is so angering to Jonah and he actually tells God at this point that this is why he ran away in the first place this is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was worried that God would be compassionate he was worried that God would have mercy on that city and it's, it's interesting to me that Jonah, the same guy who had just disobeyed God and was shown mercy himself, is so angry about someone else getting mercy and not getting what's coming to them. So at the end of this book, he's sitting at the edge of town, and he's just watching from this high point. He's just watching the city of Nineveh. And he's, he kind of thinks, oh, this is it. It's time for destruction, you know. And he's, while he's waiting for it to get destroyed, he gets mad at God when God decides not to destroy the city, when God shows mercy to the city. And he throws this big temper tantrum, he tells God that he would rather be dead, and he sits here alone and bitter. And the last words that we read from the book of Jonah are actually from God. And God asks Jonah if he, would not, if he shouldn't care about these 120,000 people whose lives he spared in the city of Nineveh. And that's it. That's where the story ends. It ends with that question from God. Should God care about this city of Nineveh? And maybe we leave this last chapter out because it does feel kind of unsettling. What are we supposed to do with that question? And maybe we're ignoring the story because it feels so upside down. We have this prophet. He's our hero. He's dedicated his life. He works for God, and he becomes bitter and sad. And these people who've done some really bad stuff, they turn to God and they don't get what they deserve. God takes away his wrath, and God bestows mercy upon them. We'd hate this if it was a movie. The good guy loses his way, and the bad guys apparently win. There's no vengeance. No bad guys are blown up. They're just forgiven. Last week, Nate taught on the words of another prophet, a prophet by the name of Micah. And in the passage that we're studying in this season, this prophet is telling the people of Israel and all of us, really, what it means to follow God. If you look in your Bible, it's in the book of Micah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Micah 6.8. I'll read it a couple times for you. Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, which Nate taught about last week, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me say that one more time. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Today, I'm hoping we can focus on two words from this command. Love mercy. We are told to love mercy. Mercy, which means not receiving what we deserve, not receiving what's coming to us. Mercy is a compassionate treatment. It has the capacity to forgive, to show kindness, especially when a person doesn't deserve it. And this looks different to many of us especially in this time. But mercy is desperately needed. As we deal with a new normal, we get to choose to be merciful. I know for parents that means giving mercy to our kids who are not doing or saying or acting the way that we think they should right now. Because we know this season's hard, and we know that it's tough on us, and it's tough on our kids. Mercy means letting go when people take that last dozen eggs from the shelf when your family really needed those eggs. We might also need to be merciful to the leaders of our community and nation, as they're making decisions that a lot of times we don't understand or we don't even agree with. We need to be merciful to our neighbors as they're trying to navigate this new way of living too. There are all types of mercies that we all need in this season. In this last month, I've been thinking about this passage and focusing on this idea of mercy. I realize that mercy is not the verb here, but love is. It is not just about doing mercy. It's not just about giving people what you think they deserve or don't deserve, when we feel extra kind or extra forgiving that day. It needs to be a perspective change. In the story of Jonah, his speaking the truth was a form of mercy. He carried God's mercy in that message to the people of Nineveh. He was empowered to do that. He did mercy. But I wanna just talk about not just doing mercy, but about loving mercy. That verb choice matters because we're not simply told just to do mercy. We're told to love it. We need to love mercy. It needs to be who we are, and we must be lovers of mercy at all times. The word for love used here is not so much about emotions. It's about a commitment love or an allegiance love. And it comes from the Hebrew word Ahab. And it's an instruction for the people of God as they're in a relationship with God and with each other. They're called to a lifestyle that is aligned and is committed to mercy. It's about being loyal to perspective that loves mercy. This way of life, this love of mercy, should be how we live, no matter what's happening around us. And simply doing mercy seems easier, at least to me, than loving it, than being committed to it and how we do life. Doing mercy makes it feel like tasks we accomplish when we want. It could be merciful to do some of the things that that feel like mercy when I'm not confined to my house and when I have enough groceries for my family. Then I can do mercy. We could do mercy all the time when we're comfortable. At least that's what it felt like when I feel like I feel like doing mercy. The idea of mercy has a connotation of power. We get to give mercy to people many times on our own terms when it's our call. And let's be honest, sometimes it just feels good that we get to be the people who give mercy outwardly. But loving mercy is different. Loving mercy feels like a way of life and perhaps a more consistent way of living our lives. And there's a commitment to the way in which we live if we really love mercy. Loving mercy is about mercy being done with or without me sometimes. Loving mercy means loving when it happens, even if I'm not involved, or even when I don't get the credit. We need to think about this. Do we really love mercy? Is it part of who we are? The other thing that I've noticed about if I love mercy, that also requires me to love the recipients of mercy. One more time. I actually need to love the people who are getting mercy. And loving mercy means that we have to love those who are receiving it. It would be easy, except for the fact that we don't always get to decide who gets mercy from God. And this idea of mercy is so, so beautiful. It's such a great idea in the abstract, or maybe when it's affecting us directly, or when we're the recipients of it. But sometimes it's not so beautiful when we don't like the people who need mercy. When we become the judges of who deserves mercy, wow, we get way off course. We can get so wrapped up in being frustrated by bad behavior and thinking mercy should only be based on actions, and that's just not how it works loving mercy means that we love mercy for everyone everyone and we all have certain groups of people that we naturally advocate for there are people that I naturally have so much mercy for I feel very passionate about advocating for those who are mistreated for those I see as vulnerable I'm all about the mercy there but the same God who asked me to have mercy for those is still asking me to love mercy for people who might be the source of abuse. I need to love mercy for the people who are responsible for hurting other people. God still expects me to love mercy for people who intentionally do really horrible things or maybe just really selfish things. Now, this doesn't mean that I enable evil. It doesn't mean that I look the other way when injustice is happening or that I don't choose to protect those who are affected by evil, but what it does mean is that I love mercy. We can love mercy so much that it compels us to pray for people, to want redemption for them, to want the best for them, to speak truth not so they're punished but so that we can speak truth in a way that they can be recipients of God's mercy. We can even celebrate when people don't get what's coming to them because when we love mercy we have to love the people who receive it no matter who they are or what they're doing and we must believe that mercy is available for all the question that Jonah had to face was did he love mercy when that mercy was for his enemies are we okay with God giving mercy to our enemies Are we okay with God giving mercy to the person who hoarded the supplies we needed this week? Yeah, that's when it gets hard for me, when it hits so close to home. Loving mercy and loving others is difficult, and that's why I need God to do it. I have to submit my heart to God so I can be merciful. Jonah does mercy. Jonah complies, but I really don't think Jonah ever loves. He doesn't submit his heart to God. And if we're willing to submit our hearts to God, he's gonna change our hearts. He's gonna help us move beyond just doing mercy to loving mercy. And if Jonah had done this inward submission, I have no doubt that God would have helped him love the Ninevites. And how different would Jonah be if he could love mercy for the sake of these people? How different might we be in these really hard times if we could choose to love mercy and allow God to help our heart really love mercy and love others. Loving mercy is asking us to love mercy even when it doesn't benefit us. And if you read that story of Jonah, that big fish that some people could see as a punishment is actually an instrument of mercy because Jonah doesn't drown. Jonah's given another chance to repent and obey God because of that big fish. And that fish is mercy, whether. Jonah realizes it or not. I know in times I begged God for his mercy as a form of escape, to get out of my suffering, but mercy is also as a form of strength when God helps me endure my suffering, endure hard circumstances. And God is more merciful than we realize, and we need to be a people who love mercy so much that we celebrate it for ourselves and we celebrate it for others. Jesus reminds us every day that we need his mercy we should celebrate that is available to all in the season of Lent we've been choosing to give up things each week and as a community we've been embracing new practices every week but this week instead of taking something away I want to encourage you to add something I hope you're gonna do something different I know we're living in different circumstances right now but it's my hope that you can find ways to add acts of mercy or celebrate mercy in new ways this week. If you want to show mercy, I had an idea. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by quarantines, by homeschooling, by trying to work in very crowd, crowded and loud homes, and some of the real the new realities, and that easy fix could be just a checkout. Maybe you just need to, at the end of your day, you're just binge watching the Netflix because you are trying to escape the anxiety of this season. But what if, instead of escape, you engaged? What if you engaged with another person? Maybe you'll consider calling someone on the phone and asking how they're doing and just listening. Maybe you can show compassion and try not to compare your struggles with their own, but just listen to them. Just be a source of mercy for them. Maybe you can ask God to show you new ways in which you can decide to choose to love mercy. Mercy is not about fairness. Recently, I've heard stories about those who have lost income, but have decided to continue to pass on income to those who work for them. They're choosing mercy, not because they received it, but because they love mercy and are committed to it. Choose to love mercy, whether you're the source of it or just an observer of it. What if Jonah had been able to celebrate 120,000 people whose lives were spared? What if we can be a people who rejoice in the goodness of God, who is willing to pour out mercy out to every single one of us? Today, I hope you'll sit in the truth that while none of us deserve God's mercy, he continues to pour it out on all of us. After this live stream concludes, I want to encourage you to take a few minutes, maybe write down some ideas of how you can add mercy to your week. If you live with others, think about sharing some of your thoughts together. If you live alone, write them out and seek a time to connect with someone this week. In a few minutes, Rich is going to show us some new ways in which we can connect with the pastoral staff at Emmaus. And this might be a great time to talk about what mercy looks like in your life in these days. Know that in this season, when it's so easy to focus on our own need for mercy as we deal with so much, that we actually could be a source of mercy for our families and for our neighbors. We can love mercy and others through the power of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, don't let mercy be an outward act at a convenient moment. Let mercy and our love of it become our attitude. As a people of God, let our allegiance to mercy permeate everything we do and how we see others. Let us be people who root for the restoration of the most broken, who believe with our whole hearts that God who saves can save anyone. Let us be people whose belief and love of mercy is a practice in our daily lives and a sign of hope to those around us. Let the compassion and mercy of our God be real to our culture because we know that you are real to us. Amen.